Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we are chatting with Wendy McKenzie Pease, owner and president at Rapport International, a Boston-based language and translation services company with clients spanning the globe. She is also the host of the Global Marketing Show podcast and the author of the aptly named book, The Language of Global Marketing. We talk about the evolution of translation technology and dissect the difference between translation and interpretation. We then deep dive into why translation and localization of content is so important in China and Japan. And if you're traveling or working in Japan or China, how to hire the right translator. Wendy also shares anecdotes of translations gone wrong along the way while we delve into understanding cultural and consumer nuances when translating in a foreign market. Enjoy. Over 90% of people prefer language in their native language. More than 70% will spend more time. Over 72% of people are more apt to buy. And over 56% will pay more if information is in their native language, even if they're bilingual and the information's in English. So people want to be able to trust the website that they're on. There is such a huge market in China. And then in Japan, the surplus money that people have to buy things is huge. American products and services are wanted. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies enter the Asia Pacific market market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. It's great to be here, Todd. Okay, so let's get into a little bit about who Wendy is and how did Wendy come to have anything to do with China? Sure. Well, I am president and owner of Rapport International, and we provide high-quality foreign language uh, translation and interpretation. And so I've been the owner uh, 16 and a half years. The company's been around for over 30 years. We've got a lot of uh, customers that are, and linguists that have been with us for over 30 years, and we have linguistic matchmaking where they align, where the same, you know, translators been working with the same clients. So it's loads of fun, loads of new information coming us at us all the time because of all the countries and languages. Well, where are you based right now? I'm outside of Boston. You're outside of Boston. Okay. So it would, may I ask where you were kind of uh, born and raised? You can, but I think I'll jump right into where I spent third and fourth grade. I think that's going to be the most interesting to you. Okay. I lived in Shenhua, Taiwan. Wow. (laughs) Why? (laughs) My dad was in international agriculture and they opened a research center there, the Asian Vegetable Research Development Center, AVRDC. And uh, so it was out in the country. It was so far out. They had never seen blonde haired kids. So going into the town, um, they would want to touch our hair because we just look so, so different. 
Tell us a little bit more about what Report International does. Right. So we specialize in taking anything from one language to another except teaching. So if you've got a website or you've got a brochure, a legal contract, we've done patent research, we've done all these things into Chinese and Japanese and uh, 198 other languages because we do, you know, 200 languages. Um, And so we're really good at helping people figure out how they want to do their multilingual communications. Um, so much experience in that that I've got a book coming out on April 13th that talks about the language of global marketing, translating your domestic strategies into international sales. Okay, so that and that's <laughs> that's a big thing. I'm sorry, I chuckle because I'm thinking back to my early 2007 days in China as I'm driving past billboard after billboard after billboard <laughs> that has English. It's attempting to have English on the billboard. Um, And I'm just thinking, why couldn't they have found anybody who understands English to just look that, give it a once over. Um, And then I, you know, but it was interesting because back then it was purely for internal purposes to make the company who owned the billboard and was doing the advertising to help them look international they really Mm -hmm. actually didn't care about getting the copy correct because it was unimportant most people didn't understand it anyway it just had needed to have that look and feel of being international right obviously now times have changed can you talk a little bit about the types of technologies that your organization uses to do translation or interpretation and how that's changed over the past 20 years? Oh, Todd, that's a fascinating question. When I bought the company 16 years ago, I would go to networking events and people would say, well, who needs translation services? You know, so nobody just, it wasn't in the realm. And then about 10 years ago, Google Translate came out and people would say, oh, translation. Well, isn't Google Translate going to put you out of business? And at that point, we didn't know. We were a little nervous about it. And now when I run into people at networking events, they're like, Oh, yeah. Google Translate isn't good. So how do you know when you're getting a good translation that's right for the culture? So in the industry, we call it culturally adapted. So there's a full range of what technology you can use in the industry. And it's been fascinating to watch the evolution. Um, There is everything from you get an unsolicited email and you don't know what it says or if it's important. You take it, you pop it into Google Translate and you get the gist of it. And then there is all the way to the other end where you still need to have a human for anything that's high quality translation. And that's why we specialize in um, marketing, anything medical life sciences and legal, because those areas still have to be high quality. Um, And then in between that, there's a lot of things that can help facilitate the process. So we use, we don't use machine translation, but we do use translation memory. So, If you use the same text over and over, like to describe your company, you want to do that once and you want to be consistent with it because in marketing or a description like that, consistency is key. And so a translation memory is something that's used in the, um, you know, 
professionally by translators to keep that memory going. Um, there's been some innovations in um, conference interpreting. So if you think about the UN, where it's high-end interpreting, you've got two people that are going in and out of the booth and they're working for 15 minutes at a time because it's very exhausting on the minute and exhausting. Well, it's also expensive. It can be expensive to get all that into a conference. So high-end conferences have that, but there's tons of, of global conferences that may not afford to bring in the live interpreters, but there's some technology that can hook into the microphone and then on an app on the phone, give a gist translation of what's going on. So at least you can somewhat follow along with the, what the speaker is saying. So there's all, all sorts. Oh, and then with, um, with the COVID shutdown, there's platforms where you can bring in interpreters into the meetings that you're doing. There's some on Zoom. We've provided interpreters right on there. And then there's other platforms if you have multiple languages um, for your attendees. Talk to us, you know, and this has always been a big thing that I've had to go through. Even if you're going to go on a trip and you want to hire a translator, Mm-hmm. When you actually talk to us about the difference, just I'm just going to lay it out there. Talk to us about the difference between translation and interpretation. Ah. <laughs> translation is written. <laughs> so in the industry, if you call up and you say, I need a translator, we all know that it's written. Interpreting is spoken. So if you're on the telephone, you're on video, you're on, um, you know, live interpreting anything spoken is interpreting. Okay, so there's a clear distinction in the in the industry as to what that means and who does each of those things is very different. A translator is somebody who likes to write. They tend to be intellectual and they quote grammar dictionaries. Interpreters are those people that like people to get along and communicate and they don't mind driving along. They, they're very motivated about helping people. Now, the one that's getting really interesting to me is chat. Because if you have live, if you have a chat bot, that's translation because it's all written, it's all automated. But if you have live chat, it's immediate conversation, but it's written back and forth. So I don't know what, whether to classify that as translation or writ or interpretation. I would have to lean towards uh, translation because I don't think that AI or machine learning, anything is even close to being able to catch up uh, to do uh, because interpretation is so contextual. Right. But if you have a live person on the other end answering you, that would be like having an interpreter and it's not proper grammar when they're writing. I mean, it might be. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And it wouldn't be. Um, I just know from like a lot of times where I've been in China and I have wanted not I've wanted my interpreter. I say, listen, I want you to translate this. And then they interpret it. But I know enough Chinese to say, oh, you softened that. I was trying to be a jerk. You took my jerkiness out of what I wanted to say and you're facilitating a nice relationship and I'm angry. That's a that's a interpreter that needs more training. They shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> and that's I well, speak frequently on that and what yeah, you do yeah. when you when you run into that situation. Okay, well, tell us a piece of advice. Give us a piece of advice as far as, you know, if you're training interpreters, uh, what are some of the things that you find that you you really have to kind of educate or train them on? Number one is they are just the voice. 
You know, so if you're live, they don't even have to put the intonation in it. They have to repeat word for word what is going on. If they don't understand what was said, they have to say to the other person, hang on, I didn't understand. Let me get clarification and then turn to the person and say, could you explain that more so it can come out so they can can do that. So they should just just be repeating what you said. Um, The other is that's important is positioning. If I'm talking to you with an interpreter, I look at you eye to eye and the interpreter stands behind and out of the line of vision and they speak in first person. So if I say my birthday is October, the interpreter should say my birthday is October. They shouldn't say she said her birthday is in October. Yeah. If there's any swear words or anger or anything like that they just repeat it and they don't have to give the intonation because right there between the two of you you'll understand what's going on because you can see it Um, if you have a problem with what the interpreter is doing then you turn to the interpreter and you say listen i need you to say exactly what i say Um, and with that you can use the interpreter as a cultural reference. So if something's going on, you can say, all right, I really don't understand what's going on here. Can you explain this cultural difference to me? And that's when uh, they can be very, very valuable to you. Right. So, I mean, if you're facilitating a conversation like and somebody from North America is is having a conversation with somebody from China or, or Japan and there's interpretation, would it be a best practice to have almost the interpreter uh, get out in front of that conversation, uh, you know, let's say on the North American side of things and say, listen, I want do me a solid <laughs> and not that they would ever say that and use that term, but do me a solid and tell me when I'm going to this is the way I'm going to operate. If you want me to repeat and and actually close more closely translate what you want to say and how you want it to come across let me know, right? Otherwise, I'm going to be interpreting. Would that be helpful? Yes, absolutely. We always tell people when you're speaking with an interpreter to set expectations. You know, this is this is what I'm expecting from you. This is how I would like it to be. If I say something that's really going to be offensive because this is a new relationship or whatever, you put the zone. And even if you're going into a a meeting where there's going to be a PowerPoint presentation or some advanced prep, send it over because the interpreters want to do a good job. They'll look it over beforehand. But that's it's very helpful to do that. And if you're speaking to an audience, you want to meet with that person before and maybe get some hand signals like speed it down, slow it up, or, um, you know, just that didn't go well. And you want to think about the words that you're using because you said, you know, do me a solid. Don't use jokes. Don't use colloquialisms, idioms, sports references. I mean, talking about you know, hitting a home run is a common mistake that Americans do because baseball isn't commonly played all over the place. Now, do you find that certain cultures are more apt to use local idioms than other cultures? Like you just referenced the U.S. Have you ever noticed that going one way or the other? I mean, I I would maybe say, okay, well, the Chinese use a lot of Confucianisms. 
You know, I think every language has them. <laughs> I'm, I, okay. you know, one that I love is in the U.S. We say when you're when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. Do you say that in Canada? Yep. Okay. In um, Nigeria, they say when life gives you peppers, make pepper soup. So I didn't know what pepper soup was. So I looked it up and I made it one time. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's, you can you can you know it's it's fascinating and and it helps in the kitchen too. Uh huh. At a cultural level, because we're we're there now, why is translation and localization of content so important when it comes to China? How does that change for a place like Japan? So your intro to the podcast says it says it great. There are billions of people in China. Over half the world's, you know, young people are in China and half the Internet users are in China. And so there's such an opportunity and market to sell there. Now, there's also research that says that over 90% of people will prefer language in their native language. More than 70% will spend more time. Over 72% of people are more apt to buy. And over 56% will pay more if information is in their native language, even if they're bilingual English and the information's in English. So people want to be able to trust the website that they're on. There is such a huge market in China. And then in Japan, the, you know, the, the money, the surplus money that people have to buy things is huge. And American products and services are wanted. So I see so many companies that they're exporting and they'll take the Google plugin and they'll put it down at the bottom of their website. And I'm like, not only are you not talking to the people, you've buried it so nobody can find it. And then what's funny is if you go, if you go to a Chinese website and you look at the Google plugin, it's all in Chinese. So you have to know what English looks like in Chinese characters to even get to the language site, which isn't going to make sense. So you're not going to buy. So why not spend a little bit of money, put some translation on there and increase your sales. And I know from the tech world, if you integrate anything Google into your app or your website and you try to have that running well in China, you are in big trouble. Yeah. Yeah. That's also another problem. I've seen that Google Fonts was very popular. Google Maps was another one. And they would integrate that into apps. And, and then they couldn't understand why it wasn't running well in China. Google Fonts is probably the single biggest issue that I've seen. Like if you want to do business in China and you're building an app or a website or something, don't use Google Fonts. It takes forever to load. It'll drastically slow down uh, your web page from loading and operating well in China. It just doesn't slide through the firewall at all. That is great to know, because I've also heard that if you use Google Translate, say you don't even use the plugin, that it shows up as duplicate content on your website. So it syncs your SEO. So there's all sorts of problems going international with using the Google plugin. You know, what's the same about China and Japan is that you're going to countries that maybe the people you're working with can speak English, but their deeper understanding of it isn't there. And so they're not going to buy from a site that's not translated. So first off, get a good translation. And there's a couple of things on there is 
we get a lot of clients that come to us and say, well, we want to translate our website and they've got, you know, huge, robust websites. They've got, you know, blogs that are going out all the time. They may not sell all their products there. So you don't have to start out with doing your whole website because you can start out with just the products that you want to do. And then as you add content in, the search engines will pick up that you're an active website. So that actually helps with search. So that's one thing is just think about what you need. Um, another thing is the, the language. Um, people don't know that simplified Chinese is the written language of China and traditional Chinese is used in other Chinese speak, speak, speaking places of the world. They think they need to pick out the dialect and they're talking about Mandarin or, you know, Shanghainese or any of the other spoken dialects. But, you don't. it's not that difficult. You can really just go with simplified Chinese if you're talking about just going to China. And the third thing I'd say is. Be careful who you're picking to do your translation, because even though the, your business partners may speak English well, they may not understand it enough to do the translation. And that's where you get into that, you know, what you were talking about earlier with the poor translation. And we see all sorts of examples across every language for that. Make sure that you're you're getting a professional who's a trained translator that if if a cultural reference is off or if there's a word that doesn't exist in one language or another, they know how to handle untranslatable words, um, that they also know to ask for clarification when something isn't directly clear. Um, and that's where we see all sorts of mistakes coming to us. And, you know, the smart clients, if they're doing it some other way, will come to us for a review and we can either tell them it's either good enough or it's really bad. You better redo it. Um, I, I tell a funny story in my book about my mom. She did. Um, she was a Fulbright scholar over in Nanjing in China, and her research associate offered to translate the, one of the research papers. And so she decided to have somebody look at it. And they said, no, the message has changed. And the original research uh, translator said, well, it wasn't appropriate for China. So she paid somebody else to have it back translated. Meanwhile, her daughter owns a translation company. So she had it back translated and it didn't match at all. And I said, don't waste your money on a back translation unless there's, you know, you need it to give to the FDA or something particular. We, you know, we can coach you through that. So she finally came to us and I gave her the mom discount. I work with her. <laughs> I said, yeah, they, they speak English well enough to do that, but they're not professionally tra trained translators. And so they changed it to what they wanted it to be, which is not unusual for somebody who's not a trained translator. So be very, very careful on who you pick. I can't imagine how difficult the work that you do must be because I can't think of anything that's more nuanced than language Yes, around the world mm -hmm. and how almost every situation starts with a blank canvas of approach. It is so true. And that's, I have so much respect for the translators that we work with because they're so bright. They're so particular. If they have questions, I mean, we had one, this is a French example, but she was doing the tagline, um, the tagline for Staples, the office products company. And, and they were talking about refrigerator art. And that's not a thing in France. I love this example. And so we could go back to them and explain how it wasn't and give them other options. And ultimately, they they decided not to use it. So when it, when it comes to, you know, marketing 
inside of you know and i'll go back to our default here which is obviously china and and japan you know when it comes to the marketing of inside china and japan what are some of the best practices in in all your working with brands that you've identified that brands really need to leverage if they want to be successful First off, I think you need to have a strategy. So you should have a corporate strategy and understand where you're going and why and lay out how much time it's going to take in the relationships and and that. Then you develop your marketing strategy, which what are the messages? What are we going to do? What resources are we going to put out to it? And then finally, you come into the multilingual our global marketing strategy. So you have to make sure all those strategies are aligned when you're going into a new market. Then you, you, you pick a process. Um, how are you going? What is the process that you're going to use to, to do it? And we work with a lot of companies that have specific processes that need to be fit for them, whether they have people internally who speak the language that they want to have review for it. And then we give some training on how you review a translation. Um, you know, what are, are, is there confidential information and how is the information going to be transferred? You have to watch out for some companies because they have an Uber model of procuring translation. And so nothing's confidential, nothing's owned, and you don't have consistency on who's doing your translation. So looking at, you know, once you get your strategy, you figure out your process, then you look at technology. So how are we going to transfer um, documents? Do you have the kind of content that um, you would use a translation memory for, or is it all creative marketing? And so a translation memory isn't really going to help. Um, so once you look at technology, then you think about quality. And again, in the book, I talk about different ways you can think about your quality. You can build a four by four matrix and think about what gets you a high return and it's low cost versus what's a high return and a high cost. You can go through like, I think it's 15 questions to look at your different functional areas of what kind of material would need to be translated there. You can think through the, your, 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 buyer's journey on your marketing. So what do you need to attract? What do you need to engage? And what do you need to delight your, your clients? And so, uh, you know, you can use all these different formats to think, but you want to have clarity on it. So then you're not knee jerk, re knee jerk reacting when somebody says, Oh, I need this translated. You go, Oh no, that's a simple email. Pop it into Google translate and see if it works. We had another client. This is a, um, was it China or Japan? No, it was China. Um, they do, they follow what consumer electronic products are advertised where. Because all of a sudden, if you have a, an electronic knife sharpener that is showing up on advertisements everywhere, that's a signal that that kind of product is desired. And so with that research, manufacturers figure out what other products they're going to manufacture. And he had an inquiry coming in from China and he was asking us to translate the emails because they weren't just junk emails. And so we stepped back and we said, okay, what's your strategy? What's your process, technology and quality? And we figured out that if he did a landing page in Chinese, he could answer all the questions that would come in and his software 
um, was something that could be used without having to translate the whole back end. He's like, this is brilliant. And he ended up doing it in four or five um, different languages. So if anybody found him on search or they heard about him, they could go there and get their questions answered and then opt in to buy it. What are some really great examples of of brands really misunderstanding the importance of localizing their content? And they come and say, hey, listen, this was brilliant. It worked every, you know, worked in America brilliantly. Just, you know, go do that over there. I'm sure it'll work just as well. Right. Do you have any good examples of that? Because I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of them. I got a ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> and we put them out on LinkedIn all the time. And I, and I use a bunch of them in the book. It's great for your own marketing. Yes. Oh, completely. We don't have a struggle finding content. But yeah, let's look at some car examples. When Mercedes Benz went over, they were going to try to use the name Benzy, But it sounded in the Chinese language that it meant rush to die. Not good for a car. No, no, not a fast one. Yeah, there was another car. Oh, yeah. You know what? Um, Peugeot, their name sounded like um, Biaoji, which in Mandarin sounded like handsome. And I don't I don't speak enough Chinese to know my pronunciation. Mm. But a, in another part of the country, it sounded like prostitute. And <laughs> so that one didn't work. And so those are words and pronunciations. But Fiat ran into a problem when they used Richard Gere as a spokesman because he was all for the Dalai Lama. And so people in China were looking at it as a political statement, um, particularly because the ad had him going to talk to a young person dressed as a prince. And so it was very offensive. And so it flopped. Another one that I just heard about, and I can't remember the name of the company, but they sold like um, Italian food and more fast food, pizza, Italian type stuff. And they, they played around with some humor and they were showing people trying to eat pizza or spaghetti with chopsticks to make, you know, fun and like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I can hear you shaking your head and uh, just shivering over that. You know, oh, that I can imagine how, how that would have gone over. Yeah. 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 So that just flopped. Well, so just on the process of doing the work that you do when you're working with a brand and you have to turn around and come back and say, hey, yo, uh, <laughs> this is this is the way this is going to be perceived. We need to rethink what is that, you know, all the way in and all the way back. What does that process look like? How many headaches does that need to go through? How long can that take to, to rejig an entire campaign? Because you flagged it as something that may end up being inappropriate. It depends on the customer and what their strategy and what they're trying to do and how much content they're trying to do. Is it a full website or was it like the staple um, brand names? Um, and so for translation, we say to allow about a day for a thousand words. So it gives you, you know, that's one benchmark. Another benchmark is um, as long as it took you to write it, that's about how long it's going to take to translate it. So you want to build enough time in your process to think it through. Um, and then you get into whether you're, you're a large global company that has people on the ground. Okay. So Okay, so you allow enough time to get the translation done. All right, if you're hiring a high quality person to do it, 
they're going to have enough of a cultural understanding where they can give you immediate feedback. If it's something really important, really long, or really technical, you want a translator and an editor to review it. Because um, here's an example. We were tra translating a tagline for a hospital and it was and their tagline was it's all about getting better. And the original translator said it's all about, you know, the individual getting better. And the editor said, I, I think this is all about the hospital getting better with providing better services. Both were right. But in the language, you needed a subject, so you couldn't get the double meaning for it. So there, the two people just happened to read it different. And then we could take it back to the hospital and say, how do you want to handle this? Okay. So now if you've got the two people on it, oftentimes, if you have a distributor, an employee, a partner, or somebody in country, or somebody in your company that speaks the language, you can have them review it for any particular company or industry terminology or meanings or word choices. So we build that. We don't charge more for that because we want to keep a final good copy and we want to give you feedback if we think that reviewer is good. Sometimes it'll be just their personal preferences or choices. And other times we've seen people put more colloquialisms in it, you know, how you'd say it rather than appropriate writing. And then we can say, that's how you'd say it. It's not grammatically correct. And we wouldn't recommend that for um, your written copy. So that's where, you know, people feel like they can't control quality. But if you're, you're working with somebody like us, a good agency, they're going to help work you through it. Now, another, um, so that's kind of the process to get something translated. If it's something like a tagline or a brand name that you're going to do, um, like I, I'll give this example that was launched in Europe. Um, there's a, a child's um, cutlery. It's called Take and Toss, and it's here in the United States. It's cheap enough where you could throw it away, but it's durable enough where you could take it and wash it. So that launched in Europe and it didn't do well because they, they were, wanted to know, is this reusable or disposable? And so the company came back and changed the name to Sava, just kind of a made up name S with the two dots over the A. Now that was going to launch across multiple countries where they wanted to use it. So say you have something that you want to use in China and Japan, although you've got the, the different scripts, um, which is a whole other topic, but they wanted to test that across multiple languages. So what we did was put together a market research survey and tested it a bunch enough of the people in the different languages to look for anything that could be negative, cause a problem or, you know, something that was already in the market that would be close to that. Yeah. I was even thinking, you know, in French, that just sounds ça va. Right. So far, okay. Yeah. But, but it's spelled differently. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. What do we really have to be careful of when we're when we're looking at trying to take similar copy? Like we don't want to redo an entire ad campaign. That would be very expensive. We don't have that kind of money. We want to try to reproduce it. What's the big struggle? I mean, if if it's a humorous campaign, is that where we might look to go back to the drawing board where if it was more of an educational campaign that might that might quote unquote, translate a little bit easier into a, a different culture? 
It's so hard to answer in generalities because it depends on the country. It depends on the humor. I mean, if your company is more humor based, you might have to adapt that humor to really make it come across. I mean, I use the the sporting examples of, you know, if if you're going to buy a a hockey stick and it's got branding on it. You don't want to see the Boston Bruins on it. You want one of your Canadian teams on it. You're darn tootin'. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it, it really depends on, on what it is, but that's bringing the experts in to help you figure out what would work. Yes, I guess that is true. Yeah, we did run into a situation, though, where and what you're talking about is so true is if you create an ad campaign and you try to take it into another country and you find out it doesn't work, it goes back to the strategy we're thinking about. Okay, we know this campaign is going to go across these countries because these are our target countries we're going to open up in. Then that can I mean, that's really smart because then you're driving how the campaign is developed and how it can launch. We did a campaign for a a medical company and we translated it and then they sent it to their um, creative agency that specialized in that language and culture. And they changed it and they said, well, this is more, you know, appropriate for the culture. And we reviewed it and we're like, well, no, it's changing the messaging. And so the client fell stuck in the middle. I was like, well, let's just get on and talk about it because we can go through what the edits are. And we did. And ultimately it came down to they were in a regulated industry. A tra- we carry a liability um, insurance policy for mistakes. And thank God in 30 years, we've never had to access it. The creative agency didn't. So where both translations were accurate, the client went with ours because they were in a regulated industry and they wanted the message to be very close to it. So those are the kind of subtleties you've got to watch out for. But again, it goes back to building relationships and your teamwork and who are you working with to work through these questions. Has the translation markets and, you know, talking about talking about the habits of Chinese and Japanese consumers, how do brands need to keep that and be mindful of those habits when taking copy, ad, and marketing into those markets? Well, I think a lot has happened over this past year that's going to change consumer habits overall in that a lot of people are buying online. I mean, we have, I mean, retail is suffering a lot and you're seeing brands that if they're successfully launching cross countries, they're going to do really well. And so it's, it's also thinking about millennials and how they shop and how they consume information because they're the big consumers in the world Um, and they're going online And they're finding the information and then coming in, um, you know, they're less apt to deal, you know, want to deal with the sales rep. They're finding their information online. So if you're an American or a Canadian or another country looking to go into China or Japan, it's thinking about how am I going to connect with those people if they're online? Um, You know, and there's another example, you know, somebody asked me once, well, can you globalize your content for, for consumer products or for um, 
you know, business to business products and localize it for consumers. And it, it really depends. It goes back to your strategy. And, you know, the example that I give is say you're selling soccer balls or footballs there. You need to localize it just like you would need to with your hockey stick. But we're working with a company that sells rain ponchos that you wear when you're biking and it goes down extra long. So that trail of black water that comes off the back of you, you know, that that is a worldwide thing. Um, so you just need to be really aware of why the buyer might be interested and in where the market is. So it's less about you know, China and Japan as to knowing who your buyer is. I think that's, that's, a, that's a great place to bring it to a close. Where can people get in touch with you? And you mentioned a book <laughs> and because you're Boston, I'm sure it's wicked smart. Uh, <laughs> where can they potentially pre-purchase that book? Okay. So it's going out on Amazon in March so when you're listening to this, it should be in the pre-sale period. You just go to Amazon or the other places you can buy books. There'll be an audio version and a digital version and a hard copy. Um, if you go into Amazon and search for the language of global marketing, it's the pretty white book with the multicolored hands on it. Um, and it get, it talks about strategy, process, technology, and quality, and you know how to avoid mistakes. It gets into much more detail than what we went into here. So love to have you buy it there. You can also go to um, the website, just my name, Wendy wendypeas.com and uh, that's spelled W-E-N-D-Y P as in Peter E-A-S-E.com and that'll take you to the podcast that I host on global marketing the book page where you can click through to links to order it and you can also go there to click through to our website Rapport International and we have a resource center there so if there's anything you want to learn more in detail you can also go there and I'm sure people will I'm sure people will that's amazing oh and LinkedIn we post all our funny language goofs and cultural things on LinkedIn. So. That's good. We could use a little more humor on LinkedIn. Yes, yes. We have a it's lot. It's a little dry over there. It's a little dry over there. Well, that's great. Okay. Last question. If you were to want to listen to somebody on our podcast or maybe a uh, great guest that you would even think about wanting to have on your podcast, but ours being very, very specific to, to talking about the APAC region and China in particular most of the time, who would be an interesting guest that you would love to listen to that we might be able to go and try to get to come on the podcast for us? Well, I loved your interview with Radley McKenzie, you know, talking about sports in China. So more people like that would be fantastic. Ed Marsh, would might be a very interesting one because he is uh, he works with manufacturers that are interested in global business. Wendy Pease, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Great to be here, Todd. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, Make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.